welcome to Great Minds. And our guest today is a longtime friend. He is uh, the only guy who gave a keynote at Advertising Week in our entire history that I loved. And I want to talk about the love show, Danielle, uh, but I still remember that story that you told so brilliantly about how the Cirque Beatles love show came to be. Uh, but our guest today is we uh, dive into season three. He's now the executive vice chairman, longtime president and CEO globally of Cirque du Soleil. Welcome, Danielle Lamar. Thank you. Thank you. And I'm so happy to have the opportunity to talk with you uh, because I remember that clearly I had so much fun attending your event at the time. Oh, my goodness. That was so we'll come back to that. But uh, uh, you, know, you told me that you're in Orlando and that you've got a new show. You've been doing this now between your tenure as global chief exec and now executive vice chairman. It's almost 25 years. I heard the joy in your voice talking about the new show. It still feels new to you. That's yes, going to be a great special feeling. Yeah, it is. It is for many reasons, because we were supposed to open the show before the crisis. And then we had to wait for 15 months. And then finally, uh, last December, uh, we have opened the show. It's a tribute to Disney animation. That was an amazing collaboration between all the cast and crew of our show, but also working in collaboration with people from Disney Imagineering and people from Disney Animation. And it ended up being a fantastic show. The uh, critiques are raving right now about the show. Ticket sales are doing well. And after going through the nightmare of the crisis, that's why there is so much joy in my voice because I'm so, so happy that finally we are back. That is fantastic. What a great story. All right, we'll dig into that a little deeper too. But, but let's start, and I'd love to go back in time a little bit. You've had this legendary career, which you're still very much in the midst of. And I want to talk about your relationship with Guy and how that all happened. But you began very modestly in journalism. Talk about the young Danielle Lamar, and uh, what what did you write about? Who did you write for? I, I'd love to hear a little bit about that. Yeah, the thing is, uh, I, I come from a very, very poor family, and I had no choice uh, to pay my studies uh, to find a job. So at 16 years old, I became journalist for a small community paper, and then I moved to the daily uh, newspaper in the Trois-Rivières area. And because I was a freelancer, I was covering everything that no other permanent journalists wanted to do, which was great because I could move from, you know, watching a hockey game to go to the city hall, uh, you know, meeting, to go and cover something in another area, maybe, you know, a, a theater act or something like that. So I was a jack of all trails but it gave me a lot of opportunities to learn while I was doing that. But more importantly, it pays for my, you know, my studies. Fantastic. And any particular story that you covered 
that all these years later, I remember I went once went and gave, I wrote for my college newspaper and I remember giving the talking heads played a big show at the Fox theater and I didn't like it. And I gave it a bad review. And I think I was wrong, by the way. I think I completely uh, blew it. But people were very angry with me because they love the talking heads. I re- and I remember that article, even though it was you know, almost 40 years ago. Anything that comes to mind for you? Yeah, yeah. there is, there is uh, this story uh, when I went to Montreal and I went to the locker room of the CFL team and I met with a quarterback who was injured and I got a good interview. And then I came back to my newspaper and I said, I have this exclusive interview with this quarterback who was very popular in Quebec at the time. And uh, my boss said, this is great, write the story. And I said, no, if I'm going to write the story, I have to be on the beat, you know, covering this football team for the entire year. And, uh, and he says, okay, that's a good deal. And so I wrote the story and uh, I was the youngest guy in the press box in Montreal covering the Alouettes. And uh, the Alouettes is the name of the Montreal team. And, uh, and that was a lot of fun. Oh, that's fantastic. I remember the Alouettes, of course. Terrific team. You almost got baseball back. They, Major League ball, Baseball doesn't want to do it. But the Tampa team, I think, is trying to play half their games back in Montreal. That's correct. It's a good friend of mine, Stephen Brofman, who is the son of Charles Brofman, who owns uh, at the time the Montreal Expo. And his son wanted to bring back baseball in Montreal. But uh, 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 obviously, a couple of weeks ago, uh, Major League Baseball decided differently. Yeah, I I would love to see that. Brofman, that was the Seagram family, wasn't it, Brofman? Yeah, that was was, uh, Charles uh, Sr., yeah. Tremendous. So you then go on and you start working in communications. You work in the public sector. You work in the private sector. I think you had a tenure at Burson Marsteller. Harold Burson was an old friend of mine. I always thought he was a real visionary in PR. Yeah. Uh, worked a little bit in rate in uh, national public relations um, and served at their, as their president. And then another trade in the TV network. It all seems like a very logical trajectory, and then your career takes a very illogical trajectory. <laughs> Let's talk about that illogical trajectory. Once you stop laughing, let's talk about that. I'm telling you, uh, you know, I, I knew Guy La Liberté, and, and, and we had a good story together because, because when I was the owner of the largest PR firm in Canada uh, in 1986, he couldn't pay my bill. And I tear it apart and then move forward 13 years later, I become the CEO of a TV network, call him to get the TV rights. And he wrote the most touching note to his marketing vice president saying, this guy helped me 13 years ago. He wants my TV rights. Do what you have to do. And then we start to see each other on a more regular basis. And then one day the phone rang. He was in London And he says, I had this amazing flash last night. And I said, what is it, Guy? He says, you're going to join the circus. (laughs) And I couldn't believe it. And that was a tough decision at the time. And uh, but uh, three, three weeks later, I joined the circus. 
So talk about what Cirque was when you joined it, because the growth under your tenure as leader globally is without precedent. It's an amazing show business story, and it's an amazing story about business. But give us the picture of what it was like when you and Guy joined up together all those years ago. Yeah, first of all, it was very tough for me in the early days. Uh, and Guy had warned me that it will take me a while to understand the business model. Because unlike any other industry, when you work at Cirque du Soleil, you have no benchmark because the business model is unique. Their way of producing show is unique. So it took me a while to understand it. But the one thing I understood very quickly was the strength of this global brand. And I saw an amazing opportunity to help Guy make the company grow. And that was my journey with Guy for many, many years. We worked together for 15 years, having a lot of fun growing the company and developing new markets all around the world. Amazing. But when you joined, there were how many, how many markets were you in? How many shows? Yeah, at the time, uh, we, had, uh, we had three uh, permanent show and four touring show. And before the crisis, we were up to 44 shows. So, so we had a lot of fun making the company grow and, uh, and also acquiring uh, other companies such as Blumen Groups and V-Star, which is show for kids, and also the works, which is magic. So now we have a, a diversified portfolio of shows which allow us to use our unique distribution capabilities to bring all those shows at a global level, touring in 450 cities around the world. What, what a story. So let's dig in a little deeper here because this is a real chance to go behind the curtain with the wizard. You were kind enough years ago to invite me up to Montreal, which I think is one of the great world cities and visit the Cirque campus. And we got to see how you put a show together, the incredible rigorous training that I'll call them athletes. I guess you call them performers. What do you call them? We call them performers. Perform. And, but, yeah. but, but you're right in saying that they're also athletes because a lot of them are former Olympic athletes. And, and when they join Cirque, as a former athlete, this is our responsibility to train them to also become artists and actors. And probably the best terminology to describe them is performers. Great. So talk about, you know, you said many of them are, are great Olympic you know, caliber athletes. They come from all over the world. Take us through, how do you find all this incredible young talent, all these incredibly fit, you know, brilliant, brilliant people who populate Cirque shows, as you said, in 450 cities, 44 shows all over the world. It's an amazing story. How do you find the talent? Let's go, let's start there. Yeah, first of all, uh, we're always on the lookout for new talents. So we have scouts traveling the world trying to recruit, to cast the best artists, the best performers that there are. It can go from going to the World Gymnastic uh, you know, 
uh, uh, championship to going to see a small, uh, you know, Chinese circus companies. So we're going all over the world. In today's world, in the digital world, and because of the strength of the brand, people are sending us, uh, you know, their performance. So today in our database, we have more than 150,000 artists that will love to join Cirque du Soleil, which seems to be in today's world, the ultimate recognition when you join Cirque du Soleil. So Scout, digital, based, uh, you know, a, of, of 150,000. So that's where we work from when we start a new show. And are there particular parts of the world, I know you literally cover the entire planet, that are great developers of talent in particular? Yeah, first of all, we have artists coming from 80 different nationalities. So in today's world, when the flavor of the year is to talk about diversity and inclusion, we've been living that for 37 years because we have people coming from all over the world working together and it's the strength of the company. Is there area where they are better? The answer is yes. For instance, uh, Russian has a huge circus tradition. Chinese has a huge circus tradition. So they're probably the two most important countries where we pick most of our performers. But again, in Montreal, we have an international circus art school that every year will deliver to us uh, close to a hundred artists that will be ready to join. Uh, there are international circus school uh, in Europe as well. So, so more and more now, we have access to a great old pool of, uh, of performers. Amazing stuff. So we mentioned the Disney show earlier. Let's use that to walk us through sort of the process from an initial concept to the curtain going up on opening night. Take us through that continuum from beginning to end, which is really, of course, the true beginning. Yeah, that's a very interesting uh, example because when we start talking about doing a show with the intellectual property of Disney, there was a lot of skepticism within our organization. Creators saying, you know, we don't want to see Mickey doing a, a human performance or stuff like that. But that's when the creativity of our people comes to play. Because when they came with the idea of paying a tribute to Disney animation, that was the right creative path. Because then we came with the idea of using the visual of their amazing animation characters at the back of the scenography and then those character would interact with at the front of the stage with our performers. And the visual obviously is out of this world. The music is also awesome. But, but the key here was to find the idea of paying tribute to Disney and keep the Disney character in their own natural universe, which is screen but also keep 
the Cirque du Soleil performers in our world, which is live. And, and the mix of the two is blending beautifully. And I'm very, very happy of all the process we went through to get to this uh, amazing show. And the first meeting on that show was how many years ago? Let's put COVID aside. But when did it begin? Yeah, yeah. normally the creative process, if we would have opened at, at, at the, the, the normal date, would take about two years. So the first six months, you go through a conceptual process where there are about three key players involved. The director of the show, which is normally an outsider because we like to have people from outside to bring a different signature from one show to the next. The creative director was an internal person that has a lot of experience in producing circus show and a production manager who's taking care of the budget and of the agenda. From those three people, they come back to us with an idea based on the mandate that we gave them. Then we, when we feel strongly that they are on the right path, then we will enhance the team with the costume designer, the music composer, all of that. So then from three, we move to about 20 people in the creative team. And that will probably take another three to six months to come to fruition with a show that we feel good about. When we do feel good about the concept of the show, then we'll move to the casting department and select the performers that will translate the idea to something spectacular. And then we will have a six month rehearsal period before we open the show. Fantastic. Now, in the case of the Disney show, that process also involved their creative people. And you mentioned working with the Imagineers who, you know, in our world of creativity, hold a particularly, you know, high place on the food chain. That must have been a tremendous opportunity for you to be in the midst of a collaboration between your own team at Cirque and, you know, the famed legendary Disney Imagineers. That was an amazing uh, creative experience because we had access you know, to all the technology that Disney uh, Imagineering is developing, and they're probably the most important developer of, of new technology. So that was amazing. And also the blend with the people from Disney Animation, that was really a rewarding experience. But from the get-go, you have to understand that you're not alone, that you have to establish a trust with the other creative organization, a respect for each other, and also, I should say, a desire to work with those people. And in the case of, um, of, of, of Disney, that was an amazing, amazing experience. Wow, that's, that's exciting. We uh, uh, share a love for Montreal. You, of course, much more as a, as a native Canadian, I know, uh, you are a born and bred from Quebec. My observation is that your part of the world produces way above, punches way above its weight, if you will, in creative industry. 
And we did something wonderful during advertising week years ago where the mayor of your city came down. It was the night we had your team at Cirque performed at the iconic Roseland many years ago. And we declared New York and Montreal creative sister cities. But your strength stood right alongside ours in New York. What is it, Danielle, about Quebec, about Montreal in particular, where you excel globally in creative industry? Yeah, I think it's the fact that we're almost on an island, you know, because it's the only city, the big city in, in North America that we're French speaking. So because of that, we had to develop our own culture. So we have our own uh, movie industry, our own television industry. And, and it, it has pushed a lot of pressure on our society to develop our own content. And therefore, uh, the creators uh, can flourish uh, at, a, at a very large scale uh, because of, of the language process. But the one thing that Guy La Liberté brought, which was even smarter, is that he used all those amazing French creators, but to make those shows global, there is no language. There is no language. So therefore we were able to tour in any countries of the world because there is nothing said in one particular language. Our language is the language of performing. And that's a universal language. Great stuff. So let's talk a little bit about Las Vegas, which has been uh, such a big part in America, certainly, of the Cirque growth story. How did that whole relationship with Vegas evolve? You've had a lot of hits. You've had a few misses in Las Vegas. Uh, talk about that evolution. And this is sort of a roundabout way I want to get to love in particular. But let's talk about the relationship between Cirque and Sin City, Las Vegas. Yeah, when, when we opened Mystère uh, 27 years ago, and by the way, we've just renewed the contract of Mystère for an additional 10 years. Mm. Uh, so when we opened that show, gambling in Vegas accounted for 85% of all the revenues in the city. Today, when you look to Vegas, only 35% is from gambling. Vegas has become an entertainment city. And, and so you go there now and maybe you won't gamble, but you will go to see a show, you'll go shopping, you'll go to the best restaurants in the world. Everything is there and you will have a fun three to five days. And, and, and the reasons uh, why Cirque is so successful in Vegas is because we understand the market, because we have developed with our partner MGM Resort Entertainment. The challenge at the time, because I remember when I joined, we had two shows, O and Mister, And everybody thought that was good enough for us. But I was challenging the people saying, no, 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 no. We can deliver as many shows as there are opportunity for us to do. Our challenge will be that each single show has to be different from the other. And that's why we have developed new type of, con of uh, concepts such as Ka and the Beatles and MJ and all the others. And where, by the way, we're also opening a new one uh, next May because 
we always come back to MGM Resort with new ideas, reinventing ourselves all the time. And that's how we have been a huge developer of content. And people laugh today in saying, it's Sir de Vegas. And that's the way we see ourselves. Very, very true. So talk about love. And I don't, I, we, we, we can't do the whole reprise of the whole keynote that you did all those years ago. But it was such an incredible story about how it came together, culminating, as I recall, in a meeting with you and Guy and Olivia and Danny Harrison, Yoko Ono, Paul McCartney and Ringo Starr, if, I, if my memory is correct. But tell us that story. And, and I, I've seen it three times. I, I can't wait to see Love Again. It is such a brilliant piece of creative work. Uh, but tell us the story. So, so George Kemp came to the Formula One party because Guy organized every year a big annual party. And George went there and, uh, and then said at the end of the party, it's so much fun. You are so creative, guys. Why don't we do something together? And, and, and then he organized this famous meeting in London where we met with uh, Ringo was there, Paul was there, uh, Olivia Harrison was there and Yoko Ono. And that's when the serious discussion uh, start. And then a few months later, uh, George died and Guy and I thought that was the end of our great project. On the opposite, Ringo and Paul and Yoko went to Olivia and said in a very nice manner, George wanted this show to happen. Let's do it for him. And it accelerated the entire development of the project. And then we had a ball working with Paul and Ringo and, and, and Yoko and Olivia making it happen. Amazing. And that's been running how many years now? Uh, we're about 17 years in, the, in, in Vegas with that show, and it has had a huge impact on the development of our brand globally, because the coverage at the premiere of that show was worldwide. Yeah, it's amazing. I'm sure you've seen the, the new The Get Back, what Peter Jackson did. Yes. And, and all these years later, you know, interest in the Beatles and they, they stand alone and above everything else to this day. Yeah. And uh, you just put the name of Paul McCartney on the marquees and he will sell out within minutes. Uh, he's still very, very popular because people loved, still loved the Beatles. Absolutely. We went years ago, my son and I went to Quebec City to the Plains of Abraham it was the 400th anniversary of Quebec and they had Paul McCartney. It was a free show. It was about 400,000 people there. It was amazing. Yeah. Uh, and the old city of Quebec, what a magical place that is. Yeah. Yeah. It's, uh, it's the closer you can get to Europe. And uh, that's what is also interesting about our little province, because it's a good blend between U.S. and Europe. And uh, that's why we're so proud of where we live. With, with very good reason. So Danielle, here, here's a, a question that I left feel for you. You have probably traveled more than just about anyone I know. My, my, my number one traveler will always be the late Bud Greenspan. Bud was the Olympic documentarian. And he actually had more frequent fly, flyer miles than anyone in the world. 
uh, and had been to every Olympic Games from 1948 till after he passed. I think his last was 2010. You, my friend, I am sure of all the people I know are a close number two. What is your favorite place to go to? And is there a place that if you never went there again, you'd be okay with it? <laughs> uh, I love London. Uh, I love Tokyo. They're probably my two uh, favorite cities. Uh, and, uh, and, and, and China for me is tough uh, because I've been to China a lot. Uh, it's an amazing experience to discover that country, but it's very, very different uh, than all our, uh, you know, culture. And uh, it's more challenging. Yeah, no, I, I'd have to agree with you. I have found learning the culture in Tokyo and doing business over there very different. And one of our challenges and one of the areas that's enabled us to have a modest degree of success is sort of understanding that you have to do business with the culture that you're in, not bring your culture to their business. Cirque has always operated that way. Talk about that balance, uh, both creatively and business-wise, of staying true to your culture at Cirque, but also bending to adapt to culture around the world. Yeah, uh, there, it's, it's, it's two separate sector here. For creation and production, we have to stay true to our value because that's who we are. That's the core of our business. And we don't want and will not compromise on the content of our shows. In distribution, that's where you have to be open in the marketing of your shows, in the way you're approaching the market and really rely on local people to help you market and sell your tickets because they know their market much better than we do. Fantastic answer. Uh, Danielle, you've been so generous with your time. There was just one other thing I wanted to touch on. And, and I was touched and I read quite a bit about what you've done and, and what the One Drop Foundation does. And I, I think you've been so generous there. I'd love to wrap just by talking about one drop and your relationship with them and the wonderful work that they do. Yeah, I always say to people, uh, you know, you cannot just do business in life. It's limited. You have to give back to your community. You have to be social responsible. And we thought that the huge issue of poverty in the world is related to the ability to bring water decent water to everybody. So that's the dream. The dream is that one day, wherever you go in the world, they have great water. And that's how we have created the One Drop Foundation that we support financially, that we support also in terms of having our staff uh, producing some content to promote the cause. And at the end of the day, if someone will ask me, then yeah, you know, what is the project that you're most proud of? Is it love? Is it Michael Jackson? Is it? And I would have to say no. The thing that I'm most, most proud of is our social involvement because it goes way beyond than just the business. It's exemplary. And, uh, and I love how you mix the head and the heart 
and I think, you know, that's really what Cirque is all about, right? It's incredible creativity, but it is delivered with such heart and such passion. Um, and I guess they say that things start from the top and I can see exactly where that past 20 some odd year journey has come from having this time with you. Thank you very much. That was a pleasure to have the opportunity to get in touch again. So much great Advertising Week content, so little time. Snackable AI is now helping you navigate podcasts like this one, event sessions, and other content with chapters, topic tags, and more. Find the insights that matter to you faster than ever before. Learn more at snackable.ai.